I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O oh God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77 closes right where we left off last time with Moses leading the people of Israel right through the heart of the Red Sea. The people of Israel were surrounded on all sides, if you remember. The Egyptian army was coming toward them, and the great sea was in front of them, and they had nowhere else to turn. And God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. He had Moses, his prophet, take his staff, and he split the heart of the Red Sea right open, and the people of Israel walked through the sea because his path was through the great waters. And that's the lesson that we saw last week, the lesson for us to remember that so many times when we're in the middle of difficulty, his pathway is right 
through the middle of the storm and not around it. Because that's his way. That's his purpose. The way is through the storm. We talked about that. We talked about when we're in the middle of that storm, when we're in the middle of that boat and the storm is raging all around us. We got to keep rowing. We got to keep rowing. We got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be real with you right now. If you, if you follow this podcast, I, I really tried. First, my goal was to put out a podcast every week. The reality of, of the, the amount of time and study that I like to put into them, and yet the amount of time I like to put into my family wasn't making that work. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try and do this every other week. Well, this time it's been, I don't know, three, three and a half weeks, and I haven't put out a podcast because I've been in the middle of the storm. I've been in the middle of my own storm, and it's been so hard. So when I'm speaking to you today, I'm literally talking to you about the battle that I've been fighting myself as God has called me to march directly through the middle of the storm. And it's not just me. It's my family. I've sat with my son. I've sat with my daughter. I've sat with my friends over the past weeks. And so many of us are in the storm And his way is right through the middle of it. Oh, my God. Would you take these words of mine? Would you take all that you have been teaching me right in the middle of the storm? And help your people. God, we want to be women who are strong. That's our purpose here. We want to grow strong. And so often you do that right in the middle of the storm. So take these words. Take these scribbles on these pages. And and help me to communicate your word faithfully. And may these words encourage your people. So what I wanted to look with you at today was Israel's response to all that God had done for them. We we talked last week about the plagues and the mighty hand of God that we saw in in the, the frogs and the flies and the fleas and all the stuff and all of the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt. And he had made a distinction 
between the people of Israel and between the people of Egypt. And he had called them out. And he had, by, by the time the final plague, the Passover had happened, the people of Egypt had said, get out. Get out. And the people of Israel moved forward and God brought them to the heart of the sea and he walked them right, right through the middle of it. That's where we were. And right after, if you can imagine what the people and the exhilaration that these people must have felt when they get to the other side of the sea and they see the waters come crashing down on their enemies and they realize they have been completely saved. You can imagine just the absolute exhilaration that these people felt and they expressed it. If you look at Exodus 15, there's the song of Moses. He says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took out her tambourine and the women were dancing. And you can just imagine this scene as the exhilaration where the people of Israel realized God has done it. And we are free. We are free from our slavery. He has done it. So what I wanted to do, though, is continue on with the story and look and see. You think, okay, so what are the people of Israel now going to do with this? Look with me. At the end, right after the dancing and the exhilaration, look with me. At Exodus 15, 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Three days after the exhilaration, three days after the parting of the sea, we find the people of Israel grumbling. Now, I'm going to take a step back because I don't want to be the one to judge these people because oftentimes I see myself right in the middle of them. Okay, so here we have three days, but you know what? It's been a long three days. They're tired. They have little ones. They're walking. I can imagine the little ones are tired. I've been on a road trip when we're out of snacks, okay? I get it. The people 
are tired and they finally get to their destination and the water is bitter. What are they going to do? They're thirsty. What are they going to do? Grumble and complain. But I'm going to give this one to them. Okay, I'm not going to excuse it, but I'm going to give this one to them and we're going to move on. Chapter 16. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're thirsty. And they grumble. And God heals the water and makes it sweet. Miraculous provision. They journey on. They're hungry. And they grumble and complain against Moses and Aaron and said, I'd rather that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. What an affront this must have been to God who had just done all of the wonders and all of the miracles, done everything he could possibly do to show himself strong, and all they do is complain. I'd rather have meat than you, Lord. I'd rather have meat and eat myself full than have you, God. Story number two. In that moment when they're hungry, God supplies for them again with a miraculous provision called manna, something that no man or woman had ever seen, where he caused dew to fall on the ground and it turned to bread, a miraculous provision that they saw every day for the next 40 years. They needed water and he healed the water. They needed bread, and he supplied them with bread. Chapter 17, Israel moved on again. 
They moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. For the pe- and the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And Moses said to them, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted their for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Story number three. Have they learned nothing? What more could our God do for them? And yet they quarrel and complain and murmur and say, I'd rather be back in Egypt. And yet he is gracious still. God is so gracious. God brought the people. He continued and he brought the people to the base of Mount Sinai and made a covenant with them. And in Exodus 24, 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the laws. And the people answered with one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And the people of Israel saw the cloud descend upon Mount Sinai and God called Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they went up the mountain of God And Exodus 24, chapter 9 says, these people, these 70 elders, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, beheld God. And they ate and drank with him. They beheld God. They saw the God of Israel and they ate and they drank with him. They answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will do it, they proclaimed. And 40 days later, they corrupted themselves, made a calf out of gold, committed idolatry with the golden calf. And it says, this golden calf is the God who brought us out of Egypt. What is wrong with these people that they can behold face to face on the mountain of God? They can see the God of Israel. They can behold his wonders. They can say with one voice, all the words of the Lord we will do. And 40 days later, 
they look at Aaron and said, Where is this man, Moses? We do not know what has happened to him. And Aaron said, Give me your jewelry. Give me your gold. I will make you a god. And that is the god who brought you out of Egypt. And I say, Be appalled, O heavens. This is Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. Because of the depravity of mankind. Turn with me to that verse in Jeremiah. It says this, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people, Israel, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I'm going to tell you, that the rest of the Old Testament from here through Malachi is going to be dealing with this same issue. God has given his law. God has rescued and redeemed his people from Israel. He's given them his law. He has said over and over, if you will keep my commandment, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be my treasured possession. And they turn away over and over and over again. Please do not tell me that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. People who say this do not know their Bible. They don't know their Bible. Because when we read through this book, we will see God over and over and over Again, sparing his people, calling them back, calling them to repentance because he is the fountain of living water. And he says, oh, my people, why are you taking for yourselves broken cisterns that hold no water? And we're just like, We're just like the people of Israel. God has done so much and all too often we look at anything else to satisfy our hearts. He is the fountain of living water and we'd rather have a house or a car or a new job or more money. And all these things 
are broken cisterns that will never satisfy. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord's, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves that are broken and will hold no water. So we see in the, in the book of Exodus that the people complain, they quarrel, they, they corrupt, they worship idols, and they would rather spend their lives as slaves with a burger in their hand than be the people of God. And simply in the face of all that God has done over and over and over again, they simply want to go back to Egypt. Turn with me, and this is where we're going to camp out for most of the day. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. We're going to see this again. Numbers, chapter 11, I'm going to start with verse 1. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Are you beginning to see a pattern here with these people? Exodus 15, they're grumbling for water. Exodus 16, they're grumbling for food. Exodus 17, they're hungry, they're thirsty again for water. And here again, we see them grumbling and complaining for food. And there's a couple things, though, that I want to point out. The first thing is, Whenever we grumble and whenever we complain, we always do it in the hearing of the Lord. See, they, they said, the Bible says, they're complaining to Moses and Aaron. And God says, no, they're not. They are grumbling and complaining to me. Now, we need to keep this in our mind and in our perspective that when we as a people are grumbling and complaining about our circumstances, we are grumbling in the face of the Lord. God brought this truth home to me in a very personal way just a couple of weeks ago. I'm a part of a, a women's Bible study where we're studying right now. We're studying and going through the book of Philippians, and it's been amazing. It's been great. And I 
happened to lead the discussion. So I was preparing for the, the next morning's Bible study. And I got to Philippians 2, verse 14. And it says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the Holy Spirit was so clear because he said to me, and Elizabeth, this is what you've been doing all day long. And he was right. Let me explain. You guys know, because I've shared it before, that two and a half years we moved to this property. We thought we would build a house a year, so we thought this is going to be an adventure. We are going to live in a trailer for a year, and then we're going to, you know, build a home. We'll, we'll, we'll live in a house. Well, most of you know that that has not been our story. There was the fire. There was my husband's broken neck. There was the rain, the floods, the architect who would not return our phone calls, and the county, and now coronavirus, the county is shut, and now another architect, and now the county, the county, the county, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and nothing is happening, and nothing is happening, and now it's been two and a half years, and I'm going to tell you, I live now in a 16 by 16 house with four people. And all of that is fine. All of that is fine. God has taught me, like he says in Philippians later on, he has taught me to be content with that. I'm not worried about the house and all of that stuff. He's he's taught me to be content right where I am. But on this particular day, it was raining. And the rain is tough. Because when it's raining... All of us are inside, and outside is mud, and Mary's in the house doing school, and Derek's in the house working from home, of course, because of coronavirus, and I'm in the house trying to do school with Esther, and she's playing, and the house is a mess because all of the toys are out, but there's more. In the rain, there's nowhere for the dogs to go, so we brought the two dogs in. So now there's four of us in a 16 by 16 house doing all of this, but now we've added to the mix two wet dogs. But there's more. It was pouring rain, and our new puppy, Jackson, who's really the size of a small horse, was sopping wet. And we opened the door and he stuck his nose in like, aren't you going to let me in too? So now there's four of us trying to accomplish what we need to accomplish for the day with two wet dogs and one small horse. Well, he's a dog, but he's the size of a pony. And I complained under my breath the entire day. I hate the mud. And then I go out to the sheep. And when I go out to the sheep, I'm in my muckers, my boots, and I'm just sinking down in the mud and the muck and the mire. And under my breath, I'm just complaining and complaining and complaining. And I come to study his word for the day. And I open up my Bible and it says this, do all things without grumbling 
for disputing. And God says, and that's what you've done all day long. What I found, and and I realized this about myself on that day when God confronted me with this, what I found is that we give excuses to our complaining. We believe that there are some things that are worth or okay to complain about. For example, wet dogs in your small house. We can complain about this, right? The pile of dirty laundry. Your husband that's driving you crazy. We get together as girlfriends and we complain and complain and complain about all the tasks that we haven't yet accomplished. And we complain and complain and grumble and grumble. And the Bible says, do all things without complaining or arguing, without grumbling or disputing. But you know what? That's just surface stuff, right? Dirty laundry, wet dogs, all of that. That's just surface stuff. Go back with me to Numbers chapter 11. What were the people of Israel complaining about? Look with me at verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. About their misfortunes. Have you ever gone without water for three days and have no idea where it's going to come from? We in America have faucets full of water and will complain when we don't have a water bottle. What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? But the people of Israel were complaining about their misfortunes. So what about when you lose your job? You lose your house. You have no money in the bank for food. Your marriage is not what you hoped it would be, or worse yet, it's falling apart. Or when you're sick, when you have cancer, these are misfortunes that are going to come. And the word of God says, do all things without grumbling. Or disputing. The things the Israelites were facing were not easy. That's what it means to have a misfortune. A misfortune is not easy. But listen to me. We just did a retreat. A couple weekends ago, we did a retreat about being a champion in the kingdom of God. And let me tell you that all the heroes of the faith were born in the fire. That's why we love Hebrews chapter 11 so much. 
It's story after story after story after story of people experiencing misfortune, but who believed God in in the middle of it. This is where champions are made. You see, it's really easy to surrender to the sovereign hand of God when life is easy. But that's not where champions come from. Champions are not born when you love your job. When your house is clean and new and perfect and your marriage is all sunshine and smiles and you're free from pain. Champions are not born there. It takes no faith. We have no need of God. In fact, right in that place is where we build these broken and we begin to trust in these broken cisterns because we have no need of God. But you will never be a champion. You will never grow strong unless misfortunes come because that is where faith is made. Isn't that why the book of James begins with considerate pure joy? Whenever I read that, I think of pure joy. I think I might've said this before, going to Disneyland as a kid. Nothing could describe to me what pure joy would look like than when my parents would wake me up and say, we're going to Disneyland. You don't have to go to school. Pure joy. And the book of James says, consider it pure joy whenever trials come. Because the testing of your faith brings steadfastness And the steadfastness must be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That is where champions are made. Really, that's what this podcast is all about. Growing strong. I'm not interested in tickling your ears with good stories and feel-good scriptures. That doesn't interest me. I'm interested in taking the word of God and living it with you. And living it with you. This is real, my friends. And right in the middle of our misfortunes, right in the middle of the heartache, the disappointment, the impossible, right there, that's where we're going to grow strong. I want to be the kind of women. And I pray that you, on the other side of my voice, would grow into the type of people who could be in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, surrounded by the most unimaginable horrors day in and day out, starving, beaten, freezing, dying. And when you lay down 
your head on your straw mat at night that reeks with mold and they're dying, moaning women all around you. And you realize that your bed is covered in fleas. Listen. You will not complain. You will not complain. Instead, you will do the opposite and you will do what First Thessalonians commands us to do and you will give thanks to our God for the fleas because he's ordained them. That was the life of one of my heroes of the faith, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy, when they were in the concentration camp in Germany and they led that laid their head down on a mat that was infested with fleas. Betsy said, Corey, don't complain. Don't complain, Corey. We are going to lay here and we are going to do the command. We are going to live out the scripture and we are going to thank our God for these fleas. What kind of woman is that? What kind of strength is that? That is what I want to be. No matter what comes. How do we do it? How do we do it? That's what we're going to talk about the rest of our time. Turn back with me to Psalm 77. And before I move on, I am going to make a very important distinction. And this is so important because listen to how Psalm 77 starts out. It says, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. And when I meditate, my spirit faints. This is so important. Because in this psalm, we see Asaph crying out to God, crying aloud to God right in the middle of his trouble. And there is nothing wrong with that. We see him here and he is pouring out his soul. He is grieving his trouble with God. He is literally moaning in pain, but he is doing it with God, not to or against God. Which is what complaining and grumbling is. Do you see the difference? The Bible says to cast That means to literally pick up your burdens and throw them on the Lord because he cares so 
much for you. We must cast our cares upon the Lord. We can grieve and cry and throw our burdens upon him because he cares so much. But when we complain and we murmur and we grumble, we are doing it against our God with bitterness in our hearts against where he has brought us to be. There's a difference. One is embracing, grieving, and walking through the pain with God, surrendering in the midst of it. The other is angry and bitter and just wants to go back to Egypt, free from pain. There's a big difference here. Because if we look further into this psalm and we look further into our own hearts and the hearts of the people of Israel, we will see what complaining and murmuring and grumbling brings because it creates something in us. Back in the book of Exodus, we see, sorry, I had already moved to Psalm 77, but back in the book of Exodus, we see in verse four, it says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Okay, they had a strong, they're, here they are, they're complaining, they're grumbling, and they, it creates within them this strong craving, which means they're coveting and they have a great desire of something they are lusting after and they are exceedingly greedy. They are exceedingly greedy. All of a sudden, all contentment is gone and they're lusting and greedy after their craving. And they weep and they bemoan and they bewail and they make lamentation against Moses and Aaron. How could you? Because I'd rather have my meat. And the craving gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And before we know it, that, com- that complaining turns into a craving which only leads to death. We're going to see that. And if we are not careful, our grumbling and complaining and murmuring will completely consume us and will only lead to lust and greed and every kind of misery. And listen, this is so important because if we look at the story in the book of Exodus, and if we look at Psalm 77, which we're going to do in detail, we see that all of this has everything to do with what the people of Israel are remembering. What are they they remembering? It says that we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. They're remembering the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And now all we see is this manna and they despised it. They're remembering the food 
remembering the food, but listen, what they're not remembering, what they are completely overlooking is the fact that they were slaves, that they were driven by taskmasters in Egypt day after day, day after day to make bricks for a cruel leader who cared nothing for them in a land that had forced them to throw their sons into the Nile River. That is the truth. And they don't remember that at all. They were slaves in the land of Egypt to a cruel, cruel Pharaoh. And all they remember is the onions. Oh, how quickly we forget. And the Bible calls us everywhere. Read through this book and he calls us everywhere to remember. But we must be careful to remember the truth. Psalm 77 Verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So what is he going to do? What is Asaph going to do when he is so troubled that he cannot speak? Ever been there? And you just don't even know what to say. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And I will remember I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great like our God. You are a God who works wonders. You have made known your might among your peoples. Asaph is so troubled. He cannot speak. So what is he going to do? He's going to remember. In verse verse 5, it says, I consider the days of old. 
That word means to think upon, to be mindful of. And then we have the word to remember, which means to recall to mind. To recall to mind. And this is something that this type of remembering is something that is going to affect our thoughts and feelings. It's a choice to remember. It's a choice to do something, to do an action that will cause us to remember. In the day of trouble, what am I going to remember? In the day of trouble, I have a choice. We all do. And listen to me, whatever you choose to remember will determine the outcome and your faith. The battle always begins in our mind. This is so important for us because 1 Corinthians, these things, these stories, these stories about the manna and the water and the grumbling and the complaining, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these stories took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let not anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a warning to us. Don't think you're so unlike them that you are so strong that you will not fall into the same trap that they did. This was written down for our instruction. And right in the middle of your misfortune, you have a choice. And listen, like I said earlier, I'm not talking to the wind. I'm preaching this word to myself, to my children, and to my friends who have cried with me this week because the battle is real. And I'm telling you, I had a conversation with someone this week. And the battle was so real and so intense. And I said to him, you take your Bible. You take your Bible and you go. And you fight. Because right here in the middle of the battle, right here in the middle of the misfortune is where a champion is going to be born and you go and you fight for your mind. Because that is where the battle will be won. 
Turn with me to Romans 8, 5. We're going to see this so clearly. Romans 8, 5 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When we set our minds on something, that Greek word means we're literally, we're exercising our minds. This has to do with a choice. And the Greek word is so complex that it has to do not just with our cognitive thinking, but with our emotions as well. That we are going to take our emotions and take our minds and we're going to do something. We are going to make a choice to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. We read this week in Luke 9.51, when that the days drew near for him to be taken up, him being Jesus, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And listen, this has nothing to do with Jesus's face. He set his mind like flint to go to Jerusalem. He set his mind there. That means to make stable, to place firmly somewhere, to strengthen something, to set your mind and to plant down. Just like we've talked about. We've talked about wanting to be like that tree. In Psalm 1, like that tree in Jeremiah 17, that is so strong and our roots grow so deep that when the year of drought comes, our leaves are going to remain green because our mind is set on the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh. Let me give you an example of this in my own life. A couple of months ago, I was driving up to our property. For those of you who have been there, you know that we have a winding road all the way to the top till you get to the valley where our property is. And I was driving up the road, and I was so discouraged because for the last Two years, everything has gone wrong. And I rehearsed everything that had gone wrong. How we had moved on and a fire had broken out. And how Derek had broken his neck a month later and was living in tremendous pain for months and months how the rains had come and the floods had come and how the architect had let us down 
and how we had called him and called him and called him and called him and he would not respond and he would go on trips and he would leave us hanging and then the county wouldn't respond and then wouldn't respond and then wouldn't respond and time is ticking on. And meanwhile, we're living in primitive ways. My, I don't have an indoor bathroom. I don't have an indoor shower. And the rains came and the floods came and the mud came and then coronavirus came and shut the whole county down. And we couldn't move forward with our plans and we can't start our house until our plans are moved forward. And then our architect failed us again. And then the county and the county and the county. And I'm rehearsing in my mind. And what I found was death, misery, and complaining. And strong cravings began to build in my, in my heart, which only leads to unbelief. But while I was driving, a song came on that I'd never heard before, which was improbable because it was Shane and Shane, who are my favorite band, my favorite worship leaders. And the song was for the good. Talking about how in all things, God works together for our good. And the Spirit of God was saying, but Elizabeth, all of these things, all of these trials, I've meant for your good. There's not one thing that has happened in the last three years that has not been my good for you. Will you believe me? And at that point, I have the choice. The mind set on the flesh is death. And the flesh is the county and the architect and the rain and the fire and the broken neck and everything that this world could offer. But the mind of the spirit is life and peace to my God who says, all of these things, all of these things, I'm working together for your good. Will you trust me? Will you believe me right here in the middle of your misfortune? Life and peace is what that brings. And let me tell you, I would lose. I would rather lose everything I have. I would rather give up my life and all the money that I could ever have to do what he has called us to do right here on this property without a house. Because my mind, I will choose. 
I will choose day by day, day by day. I will choose to not look at the great waters that are surrounding me, but I will look to my God and I will look to his promises and I will look with the spirit and he will bring life and peace no matter what the circumstances will bring. And you, my friends, can hold me to that because we are down right now to the wire and within the next 60 days, we could lose everything. But if we lose this property, I pray that I will rejoice with my God, and I pray that I would set my mind on his spirit because he is doing something great. And I will set my face like flint to trust him. I want to go back. This just stunned me this week. I want to go back to verse 10 in Psalm 77. Verse 10 says this. It says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. As I so often do as I'm working through thoughts and studying scripture. I I love to go to the Hebrew. I love to go to the Greek because it's so rich and it creates in my mind the picture that I need to understand the truth. And when I looked at this word, this word appeal, I was overwhelmed. This word appeal means to twist or whirl or writhe in pain like we do when we're in childbirth. When there's that twisting and everything just hurts so much and we writhe in pain. It also means to be weak to be sick, to be rubbed or worn. Isn't that what trials and misfortunes do? They wear us down. They rub us raw. They twist us and they make us writhe in pain and they make us so weak. Or do they? Because this word can also be translated to bear to bring forth as in childbirth. To bring forth a child. To bring forth strength. It's going to birth something in us. This pain, this writhing in pain and this twisting and turning and these afflictions that are so great, it's going to bear something in us. Our mindset on the flesh. 
I can guarantee you the mind set on the flesh will bear death. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just take these words, these definitions, and I think them through with Scripture. I think them through with all of the truths that we see in Scripture. And when I saw, there's another meaning to this word. And it's translated right here, to appeal. Because when we're in the middle of this writhing pain, when we're in the middle of our afflictions and our agony and our suffering, we're making an appeal to God. We're appealing to God right in the middle of it all. Meaning that when we are in the middle of our misfortune, when we are in the middle of our pain, when we are rubbed raw on all sides and afflicted, it is in that place we make an appeal. And it's in that place that we bring forth and we bear something. This this word is also in verse 12, where it says, I will ponder all your work. I'm going to think about all your work and I'm going to meditate on all your deeds right there in the middle of my pain. I'm going to appeal to you and to your mighty deeds. I will appeal to this. Verse 10, the years of the right hand of the most high, the right hand is the hand of power. Because right there in our remembering, what does he do? He begins to remember when the waters saw you, oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And listen, your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters, though your footprints were unseen. Right in the middle, great waters on every side. He's birthing something in us. And I'm going to tell you, he's birthing in you. He's birthing in me, a champion. Just like in Hebrews 11, someone who will believe God when they remember all that he has done. These stories are for our instruction. Turn your twisting and your infliction into an appeal to the right hand of the most high God. Jesus set his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. And it was right there in Jerusalem. It was right there when he set his face to go to Jerusalem that he made his appeal to God. Because listen, there's another There's another definition for this word appeal. It's not just twisting or writhing in pain. It's not just affliction. But it also means to bore or to pierce. And this is the word in Isaiah 53, 5 that says this. 
he was pierced for our transgression. He was pierced for our transgression. He twisted and writhed in pain. He was rubbed, worn, afflicted, and grieved. But in that place, he was making his appeal to God on our behalf. For our transgressions. Because we are just like the people of Israel. Be appalled, O heavens. At this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people, you and me, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken Cisterns that can hold no water. That's what the transgression is. That is everything that is wrong with us. That we would want leeks and onions or cars or houses or the American dream or whatever craving you would have that could replace the living God. Be appalled, O my soul, at this. That I have forsaken you, the fountain of living water. That's what the transgression is. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And right there, he was making his appeal to God on our behalf. And when we recognize our poverty, when we recognize the transgression that we have done these evils, that we have forsaken him, the spring of living water, and chosen for ourselves these broken cisterns, And when we look at our soul and we are so appalled, and we are broken in spirit. The Bible says in Matthew 5, this is the man, this is the woman to whom he gives his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a people who will not complain, but will willingly to surrender, willingly surrender to the reign of God, whatever he may bring. And while Actively participate in what he gives us. The intimacy of walking through our misfortunes with him. 
Listen, this is real life. And listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Not only was he pierced for our transgressions, but by his wounds, we are healed. Go back with me to Romans 8 to understand this. We read that for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. We saw that with the people of Israel. We've seen that in our own lives. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. What was broken at the fall of mankind was pierced on the cross of Jesus Christ and the appeal was made. And God healed us by putting the seed of Christ within us, the spirit of the living God. And what was broken was healed. And we can walk in intimacy with him. And that's what we were created for. To know him. This is eternal life that we would know him, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What God is so great as our God. He gives us himself right in the middle of your misfortune. He's extending himself. That's what grace is. That's what grace is. It's Jesus Christ extending himself to give himself away right in the middle of your misfortune. Set your mind on the spirit and the spirit of Christ will come and live his life in you. This is true, my friends, and this is life. The battle is in our minds. For the rest of our lives, we will wage a war between the flesh and the spirit, and we must make the choice. We read this this week in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of day. The people of Israel had a choice. 
Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? They consistently chose death time and time again, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, which led to greed and lusting and cravings of the mind, which led to unbelief and their unbelief led to death. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans gives us the same choice. And I'm presenting it to you today. Choose life or death. It's the battle of the mind. Turn one more time to Philippians 2.14. I'm going to start this time in verse 12. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Listen, this is the challenge right here. God is saying, work out your salvation One of the ways we work out our salvation is to set our minds not on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the spirit. And as we do that, we choose to set our minds on the things of the spirit. It is God who's working in you. God is going to be working in you by his spirit, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And one of the evidences of his working is that you will do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's the evidence of God working in you. This is huge. Because we live in a world that complains and argues and disputes about everything. But this is kingdom living we're talking about. The people of the kingdom of God are willingly surrendered to the reign of him. And are going to actively participate with him in the middle of the twisting, in the middle of the affliction and grief. And when we live that kind of life, we're going to shine as lights in the world. Do you see it? When we can live that kind of life, we will shine as lights in a very, very dark world. And that's what they need to see 
Christians who have learned to suffer well. And though they lose everything, they will not dishonor God by saying, I'd rather be back in Egypt where I was a slave. This is what our world needs to see. Corey Tinboom, by faith, along with her sister Betsy, who challenged her, thanked God for the fleece. Right in the middle of a living hell, she thanked God for the fleas and was not willing to, to give in to her flesh and complain about them but chose by faith. Do you know what the will of God is for you? People wonder, what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Corey and Betsy Tinboom chose not only to believe it, but to live it. Betsy died in that concentration camp. But at the end of Corey's time there, she learned that because of all the fleas that were in their barracks, because of how many fleas were in their barracks, the Nazi guards would not come in to where they were. The guards didn't want to get the fleas. They wouldn't go in. And because the guards were not, would not go in, Corey and Betsy were free to share the word of God and minister to those people who were facing death and horror every single day. But this is so important. The women in those barracks could listen to them because they were shining as lights in that place, holding fast to the word of God because they chose by faith to not grumble and complain in the midst of it. And now for the rest of all time, their story lives on to people like you and people like me who when we are going through trials can look at their lives and say in the worst hell we could possibly imagine God was faithful. And to this day, their lives are shining as lights of the world. Before she died, Betsy told Corey, God had given Betsy a dream that Corey would go on to proclaim to the world that there is no pit so deep that Jesus isn't deeper still. And Betsy said, Corey, they will believe us because we've lived it. And they shine as lights. 
So now I speak with the prophet Moses. I speak with the apostle Paul. And I speak to my own soul. I have set before us today life and death. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your and length of days. Now go. Now go and choose.